0: It's a joy to be up here this morning. i got to confess, a lot of what I know about Scripture I learned from a guy standing back there in the back, Dr. Phil Smulin. If you hear anything that sounds familiar, yes, I probably did borrow it from one of your sermons. <laughs> New Testament faith, New Testament salvation, is by faith. Old Testament salvation was by obedience. I was at a conference in Kenya, and I heard that remark during a break made by an older pastor to a younger. Was he right? Well, whether he was right or not, he's among a vast number of Christians who believe that God changed his plan of salvation in the New Testament. Others believe that it changed from time to time in the Old Testament as well. So let's see if we can track down Old Testament salvation. And we'll start in Genesis with a visit to the Garden of Eden. If you're able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read from the New American Standard Version uh, instead of what's in your text, so you'll notice a few differences. You'll also notice I didn't bring my Bible up here. As my eyes get older, I need a larger and larger font, so I have to print it out. So uh, uh, I am reading from... Uh, We'll start with Genesis Genesis 3, 1 through 7. The other parts we'll read as we get to them. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit in the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You surely shall not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Father God, we pray that as we look at your word this morning that you might teach us from it. Help us to see ourselves through the lens of the first gospel. May your Holy Spirit inscribe your word on our hearts and give us faith to trust in your word, both your word as written and your word incarnate, your word made flesh who is Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. Let me see it. Now, before we dive into the text this morning, you should know that, like many Presbyterians, I find my theological home in what is called covenant theology or reformed theology. And the reformers believed, from what they saw in Scripture, that man is fallen, that fallen man is born in sin, that sinful man has a heart of stone, and that without the Spirit's work of regeneration is unable to turn from his sinful nature to follow God. I believe, as did the Reformers, that Scripture clearly teaches that man cannot earn forgiveness or salvation. Therefore, God makes a covenant with his people that he will provide the way of salvation. And down through history, God calls his people to trust him for salvation. The Reformers believe that we are saved by God's grace through faith in the work of an anointed substitute. We are saved by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. The word Christ comes to us from Greek. If it were in Hebrew, it would be Messiah, and both of these words mean one that is anointed. So salvation is by grace alone through faith alone in the anointed one that would come, the Messiah, the Christ. I believe that this is true today, and I also believe that it's been true since the beginning. If that premise is correct, then it must have been been true for all the Old Testament saints. If Adam and Eve are to be saved after the fall, it must be by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. How so, if Adam and Eve lived long before the time of Christ? Well, let's see what we can deduce from Scripture. To understand salvation in Adam's day, we should first look at Adam's problem. And that problem is revealed in the second chapter of Genesis. There God issues his first commandment to Adam. From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. One simple command, very succinct, impossible to misunderstand, no need for any theological training in order to understand it or to comprehend it. No preacher needs to explain it to you. Eat anything you want except from that one tree. If they could have obeyed that one command, God's word could have ended at the end of Genesis 2 with the words, and they lived happily ever after. But they may have been living happily for the moment, but things changed in the third chapter. An interloper comes along. The serpent was cunning. Notice that he doesn't confront Adam. No reason is given, but maybe he thought that Adam, having heard the commandment directly from God, would be a tough sell. Instead, he confronts the woman, whom we presume to have received her knowledge of the commandment from her husband, rather than directly from God. The commandment is found in verse 17, and woman was created in verse 22. In any event, the serpent goes on the attack, And we see his craftiness in his first utterance. He attacks the word of God. We read, indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Through the ages, and especially today, those who attack the gospel tend to start with an attack on the word of God. They either attack the revealed word of God, the scriptures, or they attack the incarnate word of God, Jesus Christ. An attack by Satan and his minions is usually leveled against God's word, God's dependability, God's truthfulness, even God's very existence. The Bible tells us that God does not change. It appears that Satan does not change much either. So the first sin was committed by man desiring to be like God. the, The eyes of Adam and Eve were open as a result of sin, and they now have special knowledge. They understand good and evil. They understand that they were vulnerable, their sin was exposed, and this understanding was expressed in their realization that they were naked. The first sin was one of commission. Adam and Eve disobeyed God's one and only direct command. But there's also a bit of omission going on. Many people tend to forget that there were two named trees in the garden, but only one was forbidden. Genesis 2.9 says, And out of the ground the Lord God calls to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the middle of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Not only did Adam and Eve choose the evil, the forbidden tree, they passed over the good, the tree of life which was not forbidden. The result is that they saw their nakedness, their sinfulness, and like anyone caught in a compromising position, their first instinct was to cover up, their sin, or to hide from the truth, to avoid shame, and that's what Adam did. In what amounts to man's first attempt to cover his own sin, he covers his shame with fig leaves and hides from God. Man tries to cover his shame, to do something so that he could avoid the consequence of his sin. He wanted to save himself from his shame. The fig leaves were man's first attempt at salvation by works. Did the fig leaves help? Of course not. What usually happens in a cover-up? It only makes matters worse. The very act of covering sin makes the sin all the more obvious. The very act of trying to cover your own sin is a sin itself. Even today, the one who tries to earn salvation by works commits the greatest sin. When we try to earn salvation by works, we deny the very word of God that tells us that salvation is by faith. In Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, we read, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. So Adam and Eve made loin coverings from fig leaves. They covered their nakedness. But it was not enough. When God came looking, Adam and Eve were nowhere to be seen. They were afraid their sin would be exposed, so they went into hiding. But... As is usually the case, the cover-up doesn't work. Hiding just makes the sin all the more obvious. God calls out to to Adam and says, where are you? Before we look at Adam's response, consider this question. Did God not know where Adam was? Of course he knew. So why does God ask the question? I believe that God is calling Adam to repentance. When God says, where are you? He's saying, in effect, you can't hide your sin. You can't save yourself. Come to me. Bring your sin to me. When asked, where are you? Adam's being asked, where is your heart? It's the same with us. We can't hide physically from God. We can't hide spiritually. God knows all our sin, and he bids us, bring it to me. If we come to him, he will carry our sin for us. If we remain in hiding... We must carry it ourselves. God had called to Adam, and Adam was on the spot. But instead of confessing on his knees, Adam expresses fear. He doesn't confess his sin. He only admitted the consequence. He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. Adam admitted his nakedness. He admitted his fear, but he does not confess. His sin was exposed. He's in fear of God's wrath because of his disobedience but he doesn't confess. God then asks, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Caught. Caught in his own cover-up. Adam gets desperate. He tries to shift the blame. The woman, the woman thou gavest to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. He's in a fix. Adam could repent. He could cry for mercy. Or he could try to justify himself by putting blame on someone else. So who can he blame? He's only got four choices, himself, the serpent, his wife, or God. It's interesting that Adam doesn't blame the serpent. Perhaps he knew that old excuse, the devil made me do it, will never work. We can all learn from that. Adam also doesn't lay any blame in his own feet. Now, Adam plays the blame game by going for doubles. He blames his wife. She gave it to me, but he also blames God. The woman thou gavest to be with me. She gave me from the tree and I ate. Or in other words, if you had not given me this woman, I wouldn't have sinned. It's easy to blame someone else, anyone else, for our sin. Why take responsibility for it? Blame your spouse, blame God, blame the devil, or blame circumstance. Blame anyone or anything, but don't blame the sinner. The alternative is to face our sin, and after facing it, to confess and repent. Adam was not yet ready to own his sin. Instead, he blames God and he blames his wife. While we're looking at the first sin, there's something else that we should consider. In Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 5, verse 12, we read, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. If the woman ate the forbidden fruit first, why does Paul tell us that sin entered the world through one man? Perhaps it's because man was given the law before the woman was made. And as the head of his house, he had a duty to his wife. And he failed in that duty. He failed to protect his wife. The sin was his. He could blame the woman, he could blame God, or he could even blame Satan. But no matter where Adam tries to lay the blame, God sees right through it. Adam could not cover his sin with a fig leaf. He could not hide from it. Neither can you or I. I can't blame others for my sin. I can't cover my sin with a fig leaf of excuses. I can't hide from God. I must own my own sin. Only if I first own it can I begin to confess and repent. The only way to get rid of sin is to first own it, to be convicted in your heart of your own wickedness and then turn to God for salvation through Christ. In our story so far, sin entered the world through Adam. The world will never be the same. Regardless of whether we confess and repent, sin always has consequence. We see that in our own lives just as we see it in Genesis. We may be repenting of the sin of anger. God will forgive us. But we may never erase the hurt that we cause. An unfaithful spouse can repent, but the marriage will never be the same. David could repent of Uriah's murder, but Uriah is still dead. Sin has consequences. And Genesis tells us the consequence of the first sin. God pronounces sin penalty first to the serpent in Genesis 3.14. Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. The serpent is sentenced to a life of crawling in the dust, a creature to be shunned. Even today, the sight of the serpent brings instant revulsion to most people. Sin left its mark forever, but the sentence isn't finished. God then says to the serpent, I will put enmity enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel." Genesis 3.15 is the promise of a savior, the first messianic prophecy. The seed of the woman will be at enmity with the seed of the serpent. Her seed will bruise or crush the head of the serpent. God is revealing that one will be anointed to come into the world to do battle with the serpent and to bruise or crush the head of the serpent, or in other words, to defeat Satan. The prophecy acknowledges that Satan will have some power. Satan will nip at the heels of this anointed seed. But in the end, the anointed one that is to come will win the final battle. Consequences of sin fall not only on the serpent, but also on the man and the woman. The woman will suffer great pain in childbirth. Adam will toil for his food among thistles. And they will die and eventually suffer the corruption of the grave. Not only for Adam, but for all those who follow from him. The consequence of sin is enormous. It was such a simple command, such a seemingly small transgression, but such immense consequence. It probably seems unbearable to the man. The enormity of it all must have been overwhelming. But then God does something remarkable. Look at what happens in verse 21. The text says, And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Why did God do this? Why did God clothe them in garments of skin? To see what the skin covering was, it is important to first see what it is not. The garments of skin were not just a physical covering of nakedness. Man could do that for himself. And in fact, already had back in verse 7, where we told that they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Clothing made from plants provides covering of nakedness in many parts of the world even today. God did not do this simply to cover nakedness. Neither was it done for warmth. Adam and Eve lived in a temperate climate. They had no need of clothing for warmth. Before they fell into sin, they would not need such afterward. Man could provide for warmth. Man can cover his nakedness. But what can man not do? Man cannot atone for sin. What we see here is the first atoning sacrifice. God provides garments of skin... He takes an animal, spills its blood, and covers the man and the woman. God provides a sin covering, and fig leaves won't suffice. The writer of Hebrews tells us in chapter 9, verse 22, that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. God demonstrated to Adam that that the consequence of sin is death, and that the only forgiveness of sin will come at the cost of the blood of another. Notice that God provided the covering. He could have told Adam to make garments of skin for himself. There's no special knowledge or skill needed for that. However, God is teaching Adam that Adam cannot affect his own skin, sin covering. Only God can provide a way of salvation. God was painting a picture for Adam. It's a picture of what is coming. First, it's a picture of the coming Old Testament sacrificial system. We see it first here in Genesis, and later in the days of Moses, and then all through the Old Testament. Secondly, the sacrifice in Genesis 3 can be viewed as a picture of the Passover. At the first Passover, the Israelites were told to kill a lamb and to put the blood on the doorpost and on the lintel over the door. And those that pass under the lintel escape the coming judgment. God's wrath passes over those covered by the blood of the lamb, the Israelites, and his wrath is visited on those not covered, the Egyptians just as God's wrath passes over Adam and is visited on the sacrificial animal. But the picture isn't finished. Adam's sin covering, the Passover, and the Old Testament sacrificial system, all point to a future event. All are pictures of the coming atonement that God will provide through the anointed one, the promised seed of the woman. All of the pictures of the coming atonement that God will provide All those pictures point to Christ, and the stage is now set for all of history. Man is sinful. Man cannot cover or atone for his sin, but in his mercy, God provides the atoning sacrifice. Forgiveness is found in the spilling of innocent blood. The animal of sacrifice represents the sacrificial lamb of God. It represents Jesus Christ. Adam deserved condemnation. He has transgressed God's command. You might think the punishment doesn't fit the crime. But consider the crime, Adam had everything. He had dominion over the earth, close communion with God, a suitable helper to complete his world, but it was not enough. Adam was not content to walk with God, Adam wanted to be like God. Although the Ten Commandments would not be written down until the days of Moses, Adam's seemingly small transgression includes elements of idolatry, coveting, false witness, and you could make a good case for most of the others. Adam's crime is not so simple, but God is merciful, and instead of condemning Adam, God provides an alternative. In the demonstration of the sacrificial atonement and in the promise of the one that would come, Adam is given a chance not to go back to what had been, but to obtain pardon and to regain the lost world in the next world. All he must do is trust God's promise of grace, to have faith in the promise that God would provide an atonement for his sin. That atonement would come through one who would be anointed to make the blood sacrifice that would wash away the sin of Adam and the sin of all who believe. Adam's salvation could only come by God's grace only through faith in the promise, the promise of a Christ, an anointed one, who would pay the price for Adam's sin. There's only one possible salvation for Adam, just like for you and me. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Remember the quote at the beginning of this message? I opened with a statement I overheard made by a pastor in Africa. This older pastor, I later learned, had been a believer for about 35 years. And I realized that we were going to seriously challenge his view of the Old Testament during the coming days of our conference. And we did did just that. Later he thanked me. It seemed that he had never considered that the Old Testament teaches the same gospel as the New. The same is true of many Christians today. Many have never read their Old Testament. They think that it's not relevant to a New Testament Christian. I believe that it's difficult to fully understand the New Testament or the New Covenant without first understanding the Old. Old Testament salvation was never by obedience. It was never about what man did for God. Since the days of Adam, the gospel has been about what God does for man through the atoning work of Christ. It's now time to skip ahead a few years and see how the adventures of Adam and Eve affect the next generation. In the fourth chapter of Genesis, we meet two sons, two sons on different roads. It's surprising how often brothers are as different as night and day, and this story is no exception. Cain and Abel travel to the beat of different drums. We don't know why that was, but we will consider how their differences affected their lives. Before we consider their differences, let's first look at some things that must have been similar. Consider their upbringing. Cain and Abel were sons of the same father and mother. They had no other outside influence in their formative years. They would have had the same training. Both would have been taught at their parents' feet. So both would know from the lips of Adam and Eve how sin entered the world, and both would have been taught like their father and mother that they too are sinners in need of forgiveness. Both would have been told of the promise of the seed of the woman, even though mom and dad might not have fully understood the implication of the prophecy. Both sons would have been told of the first animal sacrifice and how blood was shed in order for their sins to be covered. Both would have been told that the sin covering represented what would be accomplished by the one who would come to bruise the head of the serpent. Many Bible scholars believe, with good evidence, that at this point in history, Adam and Eve and their sons were vegetarians, that they obtained their food by tilling the soil. We see strong evidence for this throughout the early chapters of Genesis. Genesis 1, we read, Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, and it shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. Genesis 2, 9, Out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree, that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. Genesis 3.17. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. Even in the days of Noah, references are made that indicate that man still worked the soil for his food. Genesis 5.29. Now he called his name Noah, saying, This one shall give us rest from our work and from our toil, From the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. It's not until after the flood that we find the first reference to the eating of meat. And this reference indicates that a change is being instituted, which provides even more evidence supporting the theory. In Genesis 9 3, God tells Noah, Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. So if we assume the scholars to be right, then Adam and his sons found their living from tilling the soil, not by raising livestock for meat. Even Abel would have made his living the same way. But Genesis 2, Genesis 4, 2 tells us that Abel was a keeper of flocks. So why does scripture tell us that Abel was a keeper of flocks? Let's see if we can find a hint from what follows. Scripture next tells us that Cain and Abel brought sacrifices before the Lord. This would seem right and proper. Dad would have told them the story of the first sacrifice made on behalf of himself and their mother. It is not unlikely that mom and dad would have commemorated that sacrifice in some way, perhaps just by retelling the story, or maybe by singing songs about it, or perhaps by commemorating the sacrifice by imitation. The lessons and practices would have been handed down to their sons. Now we see Cain and Abel come before their lord, with their offering. Reading in Genesis 4, starting at verse 3. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. And Abel, on his part, also brought the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. The Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. The offerings bought, brought by the brothers are different. Cain harvests his crop and brings an offering of produce. Abel has slain an animal from the flock and brings his offering from the one that was slain. God regards with favor the offering made by Abel and disregards the offering of Cain. Here there's different disagreement among scholars but I believe that the difference in the offerings and what lies behind that difference is the key to what happens. Abel kept a flock but not for food as near as we can tell. Perhaps he kept the flock for the very purpose of commemorating the sacrifice that God made when he provided a sin covering for Adam. It seems that Abel knew and believed in the significance of the slain sacrifice, the need of the spilling of blood. He knew what it meant to trust God's promises, and he trusted that God would send an anointed one, the seed of the woman, to crush the head of evil. Abel remembers the story of the slain lamb, which God provided covering for the sin of his parents and for the sins of all believers. Because Abel knew and trusted those promises, God regarded Abel's offering with favor. Abel's offering represents Abel's belief and trust in God's promise. And God credits to Abel the righteousness that is bestowed on all of those who believe and trust in God. Abel brought the firstlings of the flock, the fat portions. He offers a the spilt blood of a sacrificial lamb. He is a child of faith, a child of the promise. His heart is right with God, so God has regard for his offering. As a believer in God's promise, Abel is the figurative father of all righteousness. Now, you might think the deduction I make here is arguable, but the fact that Abel's offering was made by faith while Cain's was not is confirmed in the New Testament in Hebrews 11, Verse 4, by faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. Abel's offering was by faith. Abel had faith in God's promise passed down from his parents. He had faith in the promise of the anointed one that would come. But what about Cain? Genesis tells us that God rejected Cain's offering. We read, but for Cain and for his offering he had no regard. So Cain became angry and his countenance fell. As a child and later as a young man, I always thought that Cain got a raw deal. In my limited thinking, I believed that God was too harsh on Cain. I could not understand why Cain's offering was not acceptable. It wasn't until I believed the gospel that understanding of this text began to creep in. I came to realize why God had no regard for Cain's offering. Unlike Abel, Cain's heart is not right with God. He's not trusting in the promise represented by the sacrificial lamb, and that it is reflected, this is reflected in his offering of produce. It's an offering from the work of his hands. Cain's offering, unlike Abel's, does not commemorate the act of sin covering that we see in Genesis 3. No blood was spilled and there's no picture of a sin covering. Instead, Cain's offering represents Cain's works. Cain's offering of the work of his hands was a reflection of his father's attempt to cover his shame by sewing together fig leaves. Dead plants can't cover sin. Fig leaves won't do it. Cain's crop of barley won't do it. Not for Adam, not for Cain, not for you or me. Cain saw no need to cover his sin by the blood of a lamb. Cain was the first to approach God, not on the basis of God's plan of salvation, but on his own terms. Cain was first to deny the gospel of grace by substituting his own works. Sin must be redeemed in blood. God drew that picture for Adam. Of the two sons, Abel understood the picture and embraced it. Cain ignores the picture, and tries to earn salvation by what he does, by his works. Even God's admonition that if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? Even that was not taken to heart. Instead of falling on his knees in repentance, Cain falls into even greater sin. And that sin reached its zenith as we see this hard-hearted man murder his own brother. Jealousy is an ugly thing. As is often the case of the unrepentant, Cain addresses the wrong problem. Rather than obeying God and doing right, Cain takes his anger out on his brother. Cain failed to see that the problem is Cain. When he murdered his brother, he destroyed the one who made a better sacrifice. He destroyed the one who was right with God. Did he think that somehow that this would make him right with God? Did he think that this would make his sacrifice better by eliminating the competition? It doesn't work. He could not improve his worthless offering by eliminating those who make a better offering. Cain had a heart steeped in sin. He failed to see that he was not in a competition for God's favor. Comparative merit is never the answer. Comparative merit always leads to one or two destructive errors. The first error is made when we compare ourselves favorably with others that we see in some visible sin. How often do we hear Christians compare their righteousness to others? I've heard statements like, I know I'm not perfect, but at least I'm not like Bill or Bob or fill in the blank, who doesn't tithe faithfully or who speaks harshly to his wife or doesn't come to church every week or fill in the blank with an appropriate sin, whatever makes you look better in comparison. This thinking strikes a mortal wound to our faith. When we compare our sin to another's in this way, we are attempting to award ourselves comparative merit. Comparative merit is at best legalism, but actually it's works righteousness that condemns instead of saves. The second error would come in when you compare yourself to another and you come in second. This will typically lead to jealousy rather than repentance. We find ourselves either putting that person down so that we look better in comparison like Cain or by trying to do some additional work, not because we love the Lord, but because we want to be well regarded. That second era is also destructive. Like the first, it is outside of the gospel. Righteousness by works was the sin that Cain committed. His jealous anger, directed at his brother, was destructive. It only compounded the sin. Repentance was the only path to restoration that was open to Cain. If repentance had occurred... Cain would have been restored rather than condemned. As there is no repentance, God passes sentence on Cain. He would be a vagrant and a wanderer. He cries out, My punishment is too great to bear. From thy face I shall be hidden. His cry reflected the state of all those who do not believe the gospel. Cain is rightly condemned for his sin. He's doomed to never know peace. It's important to note it that Cain was not banished because he killed his brother. Murderers can find repentance. Remember the story of David and Uriah. Rather, it's because Cain did not repent of his sin, he refused to believe the promises of God. He doesn't trust God's grace. He has no faith in the anointed one that would come. The murder was simply a reflection of his heart. The story of Cain and Abel is the story of two brothers who are as different as night and day, as different as life and death. Abel is alive by his faith in the promise of God. Abel believed the promise of God. He believed in the anointed seed of the woman that would come and someday crush the head of Satan. He believed that the blood of an anointed substitute would cover his sin. Even today, Abel enjoys the reward of his faith. Today, he is in the presence of God. He's praising God for his grace in sending the anointed one whom he now knows to be Jesus Christ, in whose presence he now stands. Cain, on the other hand, tried to make himself right with God by offering his works. He cares not for the promise. His faith is not in the future work of an anointed one. Instead, his faith was in his own self-righteousness, represented by the offering of the works of his hand. He believes in himself rather than the one who would come. Cain's offering was rightly rejected by God because Cain rejected the free grace that God had offered to him. Cain was and is dead in his works of self-righteousness. His sentence to a life of wandering, a life apart from God, continues today. But even today, Cain has only himself to blame for being cast out of the presence of God. Cain and Abel, two sons of the same earthly parents, but two sons on different roads. Abel took what will later be called the narrow road. He trusted God's grace, God's mercy. He had faith in God's promise. He looked forward to the coming of the object of that faith, Jesus Christ. Abel was saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Even after God admonished Cain to choose a different course, Cain refused to do so. He traveled the road that is wide and that will be chosen by many after him. He chose to carry the weight of his sin himself, And he carried it in bitterness as he wandered in the wilderness, far from the presence of God. We all face the same dilemma. We must all choose to trust God's grace or to trust our own works. Genesis 4 paints a vivid picture of that choice. It reminds me of a statement that Joshua made to the nation of Israel as he approached the end of his life. Joshua 24, starting in verse 14, he told the people, Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth, and put away the gods which your father served beyond the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. And if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your father served which were beyond the river or the God of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So I ask you today, who will you serve? The God of Cain, the idol of self-righteousness, or the God of Abel, the God who came to earth in the form of Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, who provides the sin covering, who provides the blood sacrifice, who died for us on the cross. If you're trusting in Christ, praise God for that. Your sins, past, present, and future, are covered. If you're not yet trusting in Christ and what he has done, then I ask you today to come to Christ. He is willing to cover your sin. All you need to do is trust him to do it. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you for your word this morning. We thank you for the picture that you paint for us of the salvation you provided for Adam. Help us to always remember the faith of Abel, who speaks to us in in faith through your word, even though he is dead. And let us this day and every day give praise and honor And glory to you for coming to us in the person of Christ who humbled himself to come to us as a man who lived a perfect, obedient life, who died a sinner's death in our place and who rose in victory over death, who even now sits at your right hand interceding for us. And if there are any here that do not yet know you, we pray that you would work in their hearts and call them to yourself. And we ask these things in the mighty name of our Messiah, our Christ our anointed one, our Lord Jesus.